I am Emily Botine. I'm an independent producer based in Brooklyn. Welcome to Air's Pitch Panel, the regular huddle at Third Coast when we pull back the curtain on the art of the editorial process. So some of you know what's going to happen over the course of the next hour. Six producer reporters will be pitching to three editors. Um, obviously, this is not... Can everyone hear me? Okay. This is not the standard. You don't normally pitch in person, and uh, you don't normally have to respond right away. So people often talk about the terror of being a uh, pitcher. I would also say there's a little bit of, everyone's going out on a limb today. So I hope we can all listen and support them and know that uh, the majority of us would not take either roles. Um, I want to thank Air for convening this. This is called Pitch Perfect, the Art of Editorial Persuasion. But uh, we, me and my colleagues at Air, have one simple goal for the next hour. We want to help you become bitching at pitching. Oh. And I want to introduce, I want to introduce Sue Shark and Aaron Bishop. <laughs> yes. Sue has talked about some of the things Air does. You've heard probably this morning, Air is many different things. Uh, they produce events like this. Uh, they bring people to Third Coast on scholarships. They support initiatives like Localore, which you might have heard about at one of the little gather rounds this morning. There will be another one tomorrow. Uh, they represent the interests of producers uh, and sort of on the network level. And of course, there's the Air Daily, which you probably know about, where it's an email listserv where you can learn about everything from how to format a hard drive to what's the best microphone to use underwater. Um, this week, if you join, you get a 20% discount. So you should uh, go to the Air table and find out more about it. You can also go to the table and sign up for one-on-one -on -one editors, one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings with all of the editors. If you don't prefer the, if you don't like the public uh, idea of public pitching. So what is pitching? Uh, pitching is a lot of different things. And of course, my whole thing is turned upside down. Uh, pitching is presenting your story in its best light. Pitching is getting to yes. Pitching is figuring out the right balance of selling your story, but not yourself. Uh, figuring out how to stay noticed, uh, but not being annoying. All of our pitchers today did their homework. They read about the shows, they sort of figured out what would be a pitch that would hopefully match that show. Um, so we are gonna hear, uh, hear those pitches. I'm gonna introduce uh, our three panelists. They're gonna say a little bit about their show and what they look for. Um, this is a hour where we are pretty tight on time. So my main goal is to watch the time. Uh, so I will be, we'll be, we'll be moving things quickly. Um, John, do you wanna start? John Haas sure. from Marketplace. John Haas from Marketplace. I've uh, <clears throat> worked at Marketplace for five years. Uh, used to work at WAMU and NPR before that. Um, but I wanted to, so our shows, we have three shows. The, the flagship show that started 20 years ago, Marketplace, the afternoon program, uh, half hour program. Uh, we have the Marketplace morning report, which is a 10 minute drop-in segment at the end of uh, morning edition casts and uh, our weekend personal finance show called Marketplace Money, which is an hour-long show. Uh, combined, we have an, a weekly audience of about nine million listeners, uh, unique listeners. And uh, we focus on business and the economy and, of course, personal finance for the weekend show, which encompasses absolutely everything in our lives. But, of course, you have to do it within the uh, you know, sort of focus of, of uh, the economy. Great. Jacob? Conrad? I'm uh, Jacob Conrad, uh, KCRW Santa Monica. I'm the editor on our uh, weekly half-hour uh, long-form documentary program on fictional, which is the uh, brainchild of Bob Carlson, who's sitting back there in a blue and white plaid shirt. Um, I 
dreamed last night that I was uh, at a county fair uh, at a kissing booth with oh, nice. Azalea Banks and Johnny Depp. Okay, that's how I feel at this moment. Um, our show is um, wide-ranging in its in its subjects, but there's one consistent theme, which is personal engagement on the part of the producer. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a personal essay or that it's a story about the producer or even something that happened to the producer, but they are always uh, an element in the story, if not a significant character in the, in the piece. And, and uh, that kind of engagement is, uh, I think, essential to the, to the sort of urgency and the um, electricity of the, of the, of the show. And um, I'm going to sort of leave it at that because we really do range over any number of topics and moods and uh, emotional temperatures. So. Jacob, I know I said we have no time in 30 seconds, etc. but aren't you also here with the independent producer? Yes, and then uh, KCRW also has the Independent Producer Project, which is our initiative to try to create some kind of sustainable uh, or sustaining uh, funding for independent producers so that uh, if you're working on a, on a piece that is months in the making and you take it to ATC and they give you a couple of thousand dollars for it, it doesn't mean that um, you're not able to uh, make your rent or pay your health insurance or whatever. And it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an experiment really, but it involves matching funders and donors with specific projects. In, in other words, if, if Marketplace has the sustainability desk or the wealth and poverty desk and they fund those with specific foundation grants, what we're trying to do is something on even more of a micro level where we're funding by project and matching donors and projects. And uh, so you can find out more at, at our table, but that's. Julie Snyder from This American Life. Um, I'm Julie Snyder. I'm the senior producer of This American Life. And um, we are a weekly hour show on a different theme every week. And it's a combination sometimes of topical stories and um, sometimes not. Sometimes they're personal stories. Sometimes they're fiction. Sometimes essays. Sometimes uh, reported documentaries. Um, and the kind of stories that we're looking for on the show, uh, you don't need to be uh, an independent radio producer and entirely able to put it all together on your own. We work with people a lot of times who have never done radio before, people who have never done journalism before. Um, so, but essentially the kinds of stories that we're looking for on the show are very narrative. So they could either be uh, sort of more in the topical realm, they could be political stories, but they can also be about families. Sometimes they can be about um, just unbelievably surprising stories, bizarre stories, but very narrative. So it's a very plot-focused kind of show. Um, and that's what we're looking for when, when pitching stories a lot of times is about uh, the action, uh, characters, specific people, um, and conflict usually is somewhere in the story, either internal conflict or two people in conflict. Um, and uh, that applies whether it's sort of like newsier kind of stories or whether they're sort of more personal stories. Julie, how many pitches do you get a week, do you think? Um, to the show, uh, we get 
Probably we send out um, a, a list every mm -hmm. so often that's like kind of a call for stories um, for specific themes. And that, I, if you're not on, you know, AIR sends out the list. Um, and if you're not on the AIR list, you can contact me and I'll put your name on the list. Um, when we send those out, we tend to get a lot. Like then, then, then we'll probably get um, for the first couple of weeks after that. We we generally get probably about two to three hundred pitches a week, but but like right now, I haven't sent out a list in a while and stuff. And right now, we're probably down to more. We get somewhere probably between twenty and thirty a week. Not that much. John, we're about to start, but John, how many pitches do you think you see a week? Not even that many, actually. <laughs> but then again, uh, we've. Uh, we've developed over the, the years that I've been in a role as uh, one thing I should have mentioned is that I'm the freelance and station reporter uh, editor liaison for um, the entire country. We don't have uh, bureau chiefs, it's just, just me nationally. Um, but, you know, I, I work with a sort of a, a small group of maybe 15 reporters that we use a lot, you know, station reporters and freelancers around the country that we rely on and trust. Uh, I'll just draw out one name, Sally Herships is somebody we use a lot of. People like Ashley Milton Titan and uh, Gigi Duban down in Alabama, um, but uh, but we do get pitches and we welcome pitches, and encourage pitches, um, and pro pro probably like twenty a, um, a uh -huh. week. Uh -huh. And Jacob, you're trying to get pitches. Yeah, we're, we we don't get enough pitches, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's okay, we're gonna start. Um, so what's gonna happen is one producer is gonna come up. Uh, Allison, why don't you come up there? You're gonna sit. A producer's gonna sit there. She's going to pitch uh, to John Haas, okay. which I didn't even say right then. Uh, she's going to give a pitch a couple minutes long. Then they'll have a conversation. They have 10 minutes. I'll give you a two-minute uh, warning and then a one-minute warning. Then we'll move on to the next. Uh, Allison Swaim spent the last year on a Watson Fellowship going around the globe by cargo ship. She grew up in Salisbury, North Carolina. She went to the Salt Institute, which a lot of them know, know about. Uh, she also went, also went to Oberlin, source of many radio producers. Uh, and her first radio piece, Big Ship Diary, uh, won this year at Third Coast uh, 2012. So stay around for a Sunday ceremony. Allison, all yours. Okay. <laughs> um, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm Allison. Hi, um, Allison. And I, well, Emily just mentioned I just spent a year traveling around the world on cargo ships. Um, I really was interested to kind of get down on the ground or on the sea and see global trade the transactions taking place. Um, and so the story comes out of that year. Okay. Um, so the story starts when the engine stops. We're drifting in the middle of the Mediterranean. Um, I'm on a tanker. We're floated with triple jet A1 fuel, which, which runs jets. Billions of dollars of cargo in the can tanks. I but can I stop you yeah, for a second? Yeah, go. Um, if you're pitching a marketplace, the first thing I want to hear is, is kind of you're setting up uh, you know what? Keep, keep going. Okay. I'll, I'll All right. Okay. Sorry. We're, we're gonna we're gonna get to the money right now. Get to the nut grab. <laughs> Here's the money. Okay. People. Yeah. We'll we'll get there. Sorry. Um. So the the reason we're we're in the middle of the ocean drifting is because the the traders involved in this transaction haven't made up their minds about where to sell the cargo. So that's the first clue that this is a voyage that's not usual. Cool. So so we stop about three different times in the middle of this trip. We finally get to the destination, Aliaga, Turkey. We drop anchor, and that's when things really start to kind of, um, that's when things really start to get messy. So I'm going to play you a little bit of tape. Cool. Um, here we go. The vessel, it's uh, six days already waiting, and nobody knows when we go uh, alongside for discharging. Sure, there will be someone that have to pay for this delay. 
I was awaiting cargo three days ago. Where is the cargo? And you must pay, 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 pay. So that's the captain. He's not the one waiting for the cargo. He's just kind of, the guys are waiting for the guys. There's all these guys up in the offices that are kind of making these decisions, sending emails around, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but, but we're in the middle of the ocean. Now we're at the port. We're dropping anchor. We're hanging out there, and the buyer rejects the cargo. So we're kind of stuck out there waiting for something to happen. In the meantime, we start to run out of food. So then that becomes our kind of problem. So wait, what's, now how long have we been here? What's today? I don't know. The, the question is, what's for lunch? <laughs> Fried rice. <laughs> the cook doesn't have any more to, to cook. Food. Food. Craving for food. We have nothing left. Okay, <laughs> so okay, so this the story is about when a global business deal kind of breaks down in the middle of the, like, and what happens to the guys at the end of this chain that are actually there to deliver the cargo. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the perspective I bring. I'm bringing a perspective of this, tra- of this transaction. Um, so, so, so let's step back for a second. Just yeah. tell me in three sentences what your story is about, quickly. Okay, the story is about a global business deal that breaks down. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens to the crew? That's kind of how I'm looking at the story. Cool. And, and tell me a little more detail. Okay, so, so let's, I guess what I'm getting at here, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, of No, course, no, I'm on but, the spot uh, already. I put myself on the spot. <laughs> we're all very busy. You know, everybody's busy. But, but uh, uh, you know, 500 words is, is what your pitch would be to us. No more words than that. Um, you should be able to tell your story in, like, really three sentences. You should be able to tell me what this is about. I mean, think about, you know, if you're writing a screenplay, you better be able to tell what your movie's about in a sentence, one sentence for a 90-minute or two-hour uh, you know, movie. So tell me in, in just a few sentences what it's about. And if you can't do that very well, you probably need to uh, rethink what your story's about. You actually know what your story's about. But, but uh, I, so for, for a marketplace thing, I guess the other thing is, too, so, so it's very interesting. You already have me hooked because you're talking about this sort of interesting thing we don't think about. I mean, the great stories are, uh, as this American life is excellent at, you know, sort of looking at these things that we don't always, that, that are around us all the time, but we don't pause to consider like, oh, what happens in that situation or whatever. <laughs> um, so this is interesting. This ship stuck out in the middle of the ocean. The, the, the deal fell through. But does this, ha- I guess my questions now are, yeah. does it happen a lot? Does it, who's liable? Who's, mm-hmm. you know, I want, I want, you need some facts in your pitch. Right. So instead maybe. Instead of just talking, uh, in, instead of, a lot of people, mm-hmm. I just want to throw out a rookie mistake, or it's not necessarily a rookie mistake, but it's like people come in and they talk about what audio and sound they have for the piece. And as a marketplace listener for, a, you know, daily, especially for our daily news magazines, uh, or I don't want to call it news magazine, but, you know, our daily news shows, um, you know, we need to know what the topic is, the subject, the hook, the tension. I don't really care at the at the beginning necessarily about your audio. I assume you're going to get good audio. You're a radio producer, you know. But so tell me about the story first. So so uh, continue with a little bit more with more detail about. Yeah. That. Well. Okay. So so again, kind of the perspective I'm bringing you is the perspective really zoomed in at this end of the chain spot. We kind of we have a vague idea of what's happening up there somewhere in some office in Switzerland and Turkey and Italy. And the UK, those are the four offices that we knew about that were involved. There were probably lots more. And then also the banks. So we're kind of getting a wind of this through the captain, who's a link between the, the ship company. Um, he's the one who knows what's going on. He's, his phone's blowing up the whole time. And they keep kind of calling and saying, all right, tomorrow we're doing this. Or no, now the 
and surveyors coming on. But anyway, that's, that's there's a lot of detail, but I'm trying to break it down sure, really, sure. really um, quickly for you. Um, but I kind of see it as all these dudes in the up there somewhere. It's not really that relevant to us, actually. Um, but I thought for the story, if for Marketplace, it might be interesting to interview an oil trader, like one of those guys, mm-hmm. and maybe weave that in through the with the ship stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that? Kind so, of so I still feel like I guess I guess my hesitancy still is that I'm not sure what this tells us about a broader the broader um, supply chain slash you mm-hmm. know the, the economy of this the the, the the this particular economy you know we're talking about oil trade and 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 how it works and why this matters necessarily that we're sitting here on this stranded ship in the ocean like what does that say about the bigger picture I still don't feel like you've told me that well I guess it. To me, I feel like a lot of the marketplace listeners I imagine will be driving home from work in their car, and their car's power bag fuel, and the fuel probably was in a ship at some point. And there were some guys on the ship that brought it there, and they're like one link in the supply chain. So to me, I don't know. The story doesn't have a a news peg per se. Like it's not like this happens. All of a sudden, this is happening more. All these guys, you know, this is a pretty rare occasion. This doesn't happen very often at all. Right, in fact, right. everyone on board said, this is such a strange voyage. I've never had this happen before. But I thought it was an, an opportunity for me to kind of, because all these things went wrong and the, the chain kind of broke down for mm-hmm. a minute or for mm-hmm. a, a month, you kind of, it brings your attention to all those pieces that you normally wouldn't sure, think sure. about because when it goes smoothly, they're kind of behind the scenes. So I, I think it's it's an interesting kind of story to sure. to teach about that. All right, cool. Um, I like, you know, I, li- I I like this image. I like the topic. I'm not sure would take it necessarily because, but but I wouldn't say no. Per, per, per se- I'll give you an example. A few years ago, we did a story about how all these uh, uh, they weren't necessarily tankers, but cargo ships. I can't even remember the name of the city, but some city like in Indonesia or, or somewhere in in uh, that part of the world had like massive amounts of of. Uh, these things just stockpiling up near the coast because there was such a low demand of international trade. Yeah, outside of Singapore, there are a bunch of ships like so. Just it's like dead. That, and this is a, you guys this have is two minutes. Okay, great. Okay. This is a case where we're on a two-minute offensive. This is a case where uh, <laughs> we had a very interesting scene. All these cargo ships in one place. Why are they there? And the answer is, it tells a big, big picture economic tale of like right. what was happening in the, the world economy. at that particular moment in time. I don't feel like the big pictures there in this particular instance, even though it's a nice little snapshot. I'm not sure it'd be right for marketplace because I'm just. I'm, but, but there might be something there. I guess. The, I guess what I'd say too is, you know, so you have that great scene. Maybe you, maybe you need to do a little more digging to find somehow to to bring it into a larger story, but I don't feel like you've told me that larger story mm-hmm. necessarily. But is it possible, can I ask a question? Yeah, sure, of course. Is it, is it possible to, you were saying, so this could, could you set up the story, you could frame it at the beginning of like, you know, to really understand the global supply chain, you have to be there at the moment when it all falls apart. And then yeah. you begin with the scene of where, you know, they're saying like, I don't know what the hell is going on and we don't have any food and we're floating in the middle, like off the coast of Turkey. And then is it possible to begin to tell the story of a global supply chain as they're getting the, the phone calls in and they're starting to piece it together? Do those moments happen in the story of where, like, you could say, like, you know, the the captain first gets a phone call and it's from the London office and the London office is saying the the loan that we got through whatever global bank 
um, got held up because of sanctions now being placed on Iranian counts, and now you know we can't we can't I don't mm -hmm. know like somehow the supply chain is is messed up in there and the oil embargoes. Thirty and, seconds. Like, can it be done that way of where you start to explain and by the end of this story you piece together here's how the global supply chain works? Yeah, that I think that's that could be one way to do it. But it sounds like you're wanting me to talk to the oil trader guy in the office yeah. before I talk to you again to at least get the context. Yeah. If not, if you, even if he's not in the story. So, so, so wrapping up. I mean, if we were on the phone talking to Strew, I'd be like, I'd be like, you know, I wouldn't say outright no. I mean, you have a nice scene, you have a good, you know, uh, nugget of the story. I would just say you need to uh, answer the question. Snyder. Uh, she's an education reporter based in the Bay Area. She taught English, uh, seventh grade English in Texas for two years with Teach for America. She's written <laughs> for the New York Times. She's radio free freelance for KQED, and she also reports on education for KUSP in Santa Cruz. Hi. Hi. I like had an intro already, so I guess I don't have to do that part. <laughs> so here goes the pitch. Um, so I went into reporting on education because I was a teacher. And... Um, this pitch in particular is something that is like the story I'm pitching you today is something I've been wanting to tell since my first year teaching. So there's one moment, I mean, there's many moments, there's one moment that stuck with me the whole time where I had ended up in an argument with a classroom of 30, 13 year olds about who owned the classroom door. Did I own the door? Did they own the door? Did the school own the door? Which was the, what they kept pointing out. Um, and as it's happening, you're thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm not supposed to be in an argument with 13-year-olds about anything. Definitely not the classroom door. So um, that was my classroom for my first year teaching. Amy Youngman is a teacher who's been teaching in Oakland for six years. She teaches um, seventh grade also, similar population to the population I taught. In her classroom, students pay attention to her. They listen to each other. They like look at each other when somebody else is talking. Um, they don't waste time. They don't waste time on anything. They don't even waste time on like passing out papers to each other. Like that's all done very efficiently. But they definitely don't waste time arguing about the ownership of any of the classroom materials. Um, when you ask Amy about this, the teacher, she says like this isn't magic and it's not just experience. This happens because she has really specific tools that she uses. So for example, she even tells her kids, she instructs her kids on like how to sit in a chair. So literally it's um, sit up straight, lean forward, nod when somebody is, is talking so you can show that you're understanding just like you're doing right now, mm -hmm. um, and track the person who's speaking with your eyes. So it's things that adults do and know how to do, and what Amy says is you literally have to teach kids how to do that, and sometimes we forget that that's happening. So as an outsider coming into our classroom, it looks like, oh yeah, of course, this is what's supposed to happen in a classroom, but actually like behind the scenes, there's like a whole bunch of work going on to make that happen. And when you, when you get into the nitty-gritty, it starts to sound like, man, she's running like a really strict classroom. Like, oh, my Lord. Um, but when you talk to her about it, she can't even – like, I was trying to get her to break down for me, like, exactly what the steps are she does for behavior. And she couldn't – she literally, like, couldn't finish a sentence about behavior without pointing out why it was better for her kids learning. So for the sitting thing, for example, she actually can see results that they're taking in more information. That shows up in their homework right away. Mm -hmm. Um, so she knows that that's working. And every technique that she talked about was directly to her connected to their learning. Um, this sounds sort of obvious when you explain it, but what's really crazy is this isn't taught in education schools right now. It's not taught in traditional schools. It's pretty much not taught in alternative programs. Um, 
it's kind of a brand new idea within the last couple of years that these are even things that can be taught this discreetly and distinctly. So um, Amy is one of a growing number of educators who say, you can teach these skills. Teachers can be made. They don't have to be born. Um, we can teach teachers how to teach with these specific um, tools and techniques. Um, and if we don't do that, learning cannot happen. Like, if we don't have classrooms that run smoothly, all that creativity and magic we want to happen, not going to happen because you're busy arguing about who owns the classroom door. Um, so the idea here is we have specific tools that are going to change the teacher, and those tools are going to change the classroom. Change the teacher, change the classroom. So you would, you would, so for the story, you wanted to follow Amy or... I'd like to follow Amy, and what's really interesting about Amy is she's also involved in, um, so one of the ways, there's, there's a, several new ideas of how to change this, mm -hmm. and one of them is to have teacher residency programs where teachers spend an entire year in the classroom, like, like a student-teacher model, except they're actually in the classroom every day from the very beginning. Um, Amy is a mentor to a new teacher this year, so the new teacher, Danny Shapiro, um, has started teaching a couple classes. By the end of the year, he'll be manning a lot of the classes. So I picked her in part because she has a great narrative and is a really good speaker about what she does, but also because I've had the opportunity already to record some conversations between her and Danny, like having her help him mm -hmm. figure out what he's doing wrong. He's not going as wrong as I did because she's there, but you can see the same things happening with him. Right. So, so I would say for so uh, like I think it sounds like a really interesting topic. I think for a, for a pitch for me, like I was saying, like on the plot or on the narrative. So, mm -hmm. what exactly is the narrative of the story, and what's the, like what's going to be the plot of the story, and what are you following? Mm -hmm. And I think that would be the difficult part that I'm wondering because I don't totally understand what the tape is that you're going to get. I understand mm -hmm. what the tape is you get for a feature news piece, but mm -hmm. I don't totally see like for for this American Life. I think we wouldn't do such a great job with that story mm -hmm. because we would be looking for um, the specific characters and what happens next and I'm not sure that in this we have like an obvious thing to be running toward of where like where's the apex of the action or do you, does that make sense? Yeah I mean I have some ideas about what tape you could get do you want to? Yeah. So um I mean, people say to me, oh, it must be hard to be an education reporter because classrooms are so boring, and I don't think that. Mm -hmm. So I think trying to translate what's happening into something exciting would be one of the challenges for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think that the tape you could get is you can get, um, first of all, you can get the instruction Amy's giving and how the kids are reacting to it in real time. I'd really like to bring a, a kid into the story and have their perspective of, like, what's it like to be in Miss Youngman's classroom versus some of their other teachers that they've had that maybe it hasn't been as structured. Um, and then because there's all this conversation between Amy and Danny, the other teacher, um, there's some really interesting revelations that happen in that process because she's having to sort of like peel back what she does pretty naturally now like for him. Um, like, so she ha they have this thing called economy of language. So if you're going to teach a kid what a predicate is, you need to be able to do it in like five words instead of 10. And like for radio people, that makes sense, right? But they literally like work on that. So she does things like she has her worksheet she's going to go through with the kids. And on the side, she writes her like keywords that she's going to say when explaining a topic so that she doesn't get off on a tangent, like talking about predicate and then going on to noun without stopping and making sure they've caught it. Um, she also does things like she has a way to check for understanding while the, cl while the class is happening. Mm -hmm. One thing a lot of teachers do is they teach a lesson, and then at the end of the lesson, it's kind of unclear if the kids have got it, and they often don't even figure that out to like the test at the end of the week. Mm -hmm. um, so she has some techniques she uses in her classroom to like 
find out in the middle of the lesson how many kids have got it. And if only like, she says, you know, if four kids haven't got it, then I know to pull them out. If 10 kids haven't got it, I know I have to change course. If 30 kids haven't got it, like we almost have to just stop and say, all right, I did something wrong. I'm going to teach that again tomorrow. We'll move on to something else right now. So for, for, for This American Life, the way that the process works is that, you, that basically uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm usually the main person, like we've designated a main person to take pitches just so that I'm available, but you can pitch to any of the producers on the show. But um, most of them come through me, and then how it turns around is that we have, every other week we have uh, a weekly story meeting of where all of us pitch, we, we then pitch to the rest of the staff those stories, and then we kind of decide on consensus if we're gonna move forward or not. So you pitch me the story, and then I gotta pitch it to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And generally, when I'm pitching it to everybody else, I need to tell it to them <laughs> in a story, and it has to be sort of, I have to like keep their attention, and mm -hmm. I have to like keep it entertaining and emotional and it has tension and, and fun. And I think like what would be difficult for this one for me is that it doesn't sound super fun. Or do you know what I'm saying? Like Two minutes. it's a little hard for me to have like the moments of where I'm all like, but here's like the crazy thing. Mm -hmm. Or here's the totally surprise. Could you make up what would be? Like what would she have told you that about this teacher that you could I mean, that's putting you on the spot like what would be something about that? That would be going on in the classroom. Yeah, that, I mean, can you imagine, like... Because part of the... Pro oh, sorry, I'll tell you. Well, here's one of the things. Um, so can a, can a teacher be made? That is a good topic that has been covered in the national press. Mm -hmm. So I would say in that regard, I would say, you know, I've read a lot of the New York Times Magazine stories on it, Paul Tuff's done a lot of stuff. The behavior stuff in the classroom is KIPP behavior. I feel like KIPP's gotten a lot of like, you know, the like the way that you sit is really important and this is the way you bring it in and stuff. Mm -hmm. That would be a little bit of a hard time for me because I'd be like, I feel like these are the stories that have been kind of covered. Like mm -hmm. I've heard those stories. ATC's kind of done a lot of them. So like there's a lot of like the crossover mm -hmm. that way. So in this regard, like I would say, like I would move off of, off of that, unless you wanted to do a story about like why isn't this being taught? If if this is the research that everybody knows, everybody's got the KIPP stuff. Why isn't this being taught right. in in teacher education programs? But then that's probably not Amy's story, right? Mm -hmm. Then you then you have to go more into the teaching colleges, right? Right, unless you did it in terms of like. Well, the new the, there's this new idea, which is the residency thing, and she's involved in one um, one example of that. But yeah. I yeah. see what you're saying. Then I would be looking for kind of some conflict or something like mm -hmm. that, like what's going on. Do you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. if it turns out that they have a theory that this can totally be taught, but if you said, but here's the deal, I've been talking to Amy and I've been talking to Danny, and it turns out that he's terrible at it, mm -hmm. and she's terrible at explaining it, mm -hmm. and they have a classroom where they're totally losing all the kids. So and because there's all this research going on, yeah. and everybody's totally convinced that this is the new way to go, and we can go watch it in the classroom and it's falling apart, yeah. I'd be more interested in that story. But to say, like, <laughs> so here's all the research, everybody <laughs> says this is totally going to work, and now let's go into a classroom and watch them as they implement it. Uh-huh. Okay, like it's a it's a it's a smaller story. Like it's 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 kind of a smaller feature story. It doesn't feel okay. like you're gonna totally get like surprising narrative moments, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, not to me. I'm yeah, still I mean, think <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah. But um, but I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>
Jacob, yeah, you're going to meet Meryl Agish, Agish, right? Agish? Agish, yeah. Agish. Uh, Meryl Agish is an independent multimedia producer who lives in Brooklyn. Her recent projects include A Fairly Healthy Relationship, A Portrait of a Marriage of 35 Happy But Somewhat Shaky Years, A Documentary Cookbook, She Went to Yale, and she recently did the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. Go for it. Okay. Um, so this is a story about the search for a place that no longer exists. My uncle Ravil is a, I'm sorry, I'm so nervous. Uh, is <laughs> I'm good, I'll probably spill it. Um, my uncle Ravil is a 78-year-old retired auto mechanic who spends a lot of his free time now on Google Earth looking at China, and specifically Harbin, where he was born and raised. He looks at where his school used to be, where his house used to be, where the shops used to be, where he used to play, and the thing is, none of it is recognizable. Some of it is still there, but for the most part, it's all been destroyed. Uh, he was born into the Tatar diaspora that uh, came about because of the rise of the communists in Russia. His family had left their farms in central Russia uh, in the Tatarstan region to pursue economic, oh economic opportunities in, uh, in China, in Finland, in various other places bordering the Russian Empire in the early decades of the 20th century. And then they were locked out. After the Bolsheviks came to power, they became political exiles. But it was such a happy time for them in Harbin because finally they were all close together. They weren't spread out around this farm village. They were all in a city. They had a permanent presence until Mao came to power and forced out all the non-ethnically Chinese people who were living in Harbin at that time. Um, some people were forcibly repatriated. Some people went back home uh, voluntarily. In his case, in my family's case, they all splintered. Some went to Australia, to Japan, to the US, to Canada. My family went to Turkey. Um, and my uncle has never been back in 60 years. He never went back. For the, a part of the time, it was because of the borders. For a part of the time, it was economic. And now he's just too old and feels like, I'm just never going to get back there. So why does he do this? I think part of it has to do with nostalgia, inevitably, you know, mortality. But it's something deeper than that. For somebody who then went on to live in Turkey and thought, this is my home now, no. He moved on to Canada, this is my home now, no. And finally ended up in Queens, and that is his home, that has been his home, but I feel like it's just never felt the same for him. The Tatar community still exists, it's actually persisted, which is amazing, I'm part of it. I, my first language was Tatar, even though I was born in New York. Um, so anyway, it's a way for him to get to his roots and to see the past, and I feel like he does see the past in the Google Earth images, even though nothing reflects that past to him. So I would go with him on these travels on Google Earth, document everything, map it out, and serve as his agent, and go to Turk, excuse me, to Harbin, and see what of that past still exists, if anything, and report back to him, record conversations, and see what we can find. I really like that story, <laughs> and, and I was really no, I was, I was, I was so hoping that you would say, oh, "I'm going to to Harbin," 
you know, because that to me is the key. It's a, it's a story about um, the sort of um, the emotions of place, you know. And I, I, I would also want to know, though, about the Tatar community in Queens, because that would mm -hmm. be essential, yeah. you know. In other words, uh, how did uh, you know how did he recreate a sense of home in Queens? And um, but uh, I, I I like the premise. I like the idea that. Uh, I mean, longing is such a great topic for radio, you know. And uh, this is a story <laughs> of longing. And uh, uh, I like the way that you're engaged in the story. And it sounds like you guys are close, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so he can express stuff to you that, uh, that he might not share with the guys who he, you know, takes um, apart <coughs> transmissions with or mm -hmm. whatever. Does he still work as a mechanic? He's retired, and he's the type of person who I think would have been a painter if he had born, uh -huh. been born under different circumstances. But his father was a car mechanic, and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. And so it was the family business. Uh -huh. And how recently did he retire? Um, I think about 10, 15 years ago. Does but he, he still, still work on cars? He doesn't work on cars, but he tinkers. Yeah. He's fashioned a, a doorway light out of a flashlight that turns on yeah. when you open the door and... Yeah. All kinds so of kind of gizmos. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I feel like I can hear this story, uh, and uh, I, I can also see all sorts of um, web elements, you know, all sorts of visual elements. I mean, Google Earth is such, you know, the idea that this guy is sitting there looking at Google Earth is so cinematic in a certain way. Is and that street view? I'm sorry to jump in. Is that street view or just like overhead views that he's looking at? I think <laughs> it's um, the just street level, the street level. So he'll actually so he walk. Yeah, he'll walk cool. down the street mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. see to his left. And so presumably right. while he's doing this, he's also he's also recounting memories. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so <laughs> um, I mean, I, I like the story a lot. I think it, this is actually a good story uh, as a sort of case study for talking about the independent producer project also, which, I, you know, this is a story of some expense and planning and magnitude. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that would be something that you would come to us with. And you would give us a, a you know, a very comprehensive plan. Mm -hmm. You would tell us how much it would cost and, uh, you know, give us a kind of accounting that would, would give us a sense that you had a, a good handle on, on how you would produce it. I mean, it's a real production, you know. Right. Um, Jacob, can you just talk a little more specifically, since Meryl won't ask you, but would you consider paying for whatever, how much is a $2,000? I mean, well, what we would do is we would find, um, you know, find a funder who would, who would oh. underwrite this okay. and, uh, um, uh, and, and do it that way. And then I also hear this story as a story of the limitations of communication. I mean, the way you, the, you know, I can hear you on the phone with him. Um, you're in Harbin, he's in Queens, and you're telling him what you're seeing. I mean, it's very moving. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. Uh, what we would, you know, and, and this sort of goes to the, to the, my overall feeling about pitching, which is I want to know um, how serious you are about the story. I want to know how engaged you are. I want to know um, how passionate you are about, about the work. And that's going to dictate to me a lot of, uh, of of whether we do the story. If I feel like um, I don't sense that, it could be a great story, but um, uh, it might not be for us. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I get the sense from you with this pitch that this is, this is a treasure for you, and that's great. You know? um, 
so yeah. Uh, and then the other piece of it, beyond that kind of passion, is um, a sense that you can carry it off logistically. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like, I mean, I would, I would look at your resume, it sounds like you have uh, some experience with big, you know, hefty projects. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Julie and John, how much do you guys start talking about logistics early on in the pitch? Like whether, oh, we could, we could never afford this, we can't do this, or, you know, can you even do this yourself? Sort of, are you only thinking story? When does the sort of production logistics come in? We, we a marketplace, if we were going to, if, 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 if a free, freelance uh, reporter producer had a strong enough pitch that we really liked that would even remotely consider paying for the travel, which we don't normally do. Mm -hmm. It's usually like, yeah, we'll take it as long as you got the funding to go there. Um, very tight budget. Uh, um, if, if that's the case, that like this is a great story, then we might try to find another story as well for them to, to package it together. Or it might just be worth the amount. It kind of depends where the trip is and so forth. If we're sending you to China for, for a story like that, um, obviously would, would, I don't know. But we hope that you'd get a grant from somewhere. Else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know where. But, uh, <laughs> no, and actually, you know, this as a as a real life circumstance, you would probably want to take a piece of it and 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 sell it to these guys. Yeah. Right. All right. right. <laughs> Stories can certainly go in multiple yeah. places. Yeah. Um, I mean, that story also just really quickly. I'm sorry. It, there's also something about that moment. How like I've noticed this with with my older uh, relatives, there's always a moment in time in somebody's life that they kind of gravitate back to, and like mm -hmm. that's their moment. I'm, I'm staying with relatives up in Winneka, and they're in their um, late 60s, or mid-60s. Now, John, are you pitching me? No, <laughs> no, no, no. But like, I noticed, I was walking through the house, and I noticed all their photos are from like the 19, like mid-1990s. Like, that seems to be that moment in time where they were, uh, there's something about the mid-1990s, but like, <laughs> you could tell that they just were very affectionate. Anyway. Let's go on to our next pitch. We have to. Okay. okay. Thank you.